Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. So, yeah, welcome to the first proper episode of the All Things Unity podcast. This previous episode was simply an introduction and some housekeeping information. And as promised, um, in the previous episode, we are going to spend some time um, talking about clean code. And more specifically, on how to apply it within a C-sharp and Unity 3D context. And to fully digest all the content in Uncle Bob's book, I'm going to spend not just one, but a couple of podcasts on this topic. And we are going to explore the chapters in the book in order. So, if you like listening to podcasts uh, passively behind the desk, grab your copy of the book and follow along. And if you're listening on the go, then that's fine too. And I'm going to explain everything with some simple examples, so you should be able to keep up just fine. Um, So this first podcast in the series is dedicated to the first three chapters of the book. Um, But first, let's explain a little about the book itself. So we're talking about the book called Clean Code by Robert C. Martin. And he's really one of the old school software gurus out there. Uh, And he's a big voice behind uh, agile, test-driven development, solid, clean architecture, and lots more. He has written a number of good books like Clean Code, The Clean Coder, Clean Architecture, Clean Agile, and of late, uh, also Clean Software Craftsmanship. Clean anything, right? He... Also has a side of his own where he makes uh, very cool videos about uh, many topics in software engineering called uh, cleancoders.com. And he has a well-respected reputation in the software industry. So I hope this gives you an idea about who he is. And if not, then Google is your best friend. But I'll uh, add some information in the show notes about Uncle Bob so you can check it out there. So the book called Clean Code made a big impact on many people me included. And the book gets uh, recommended to many developers, range from juniors to seniors, and generally it lands very well. But there's also many people who think that the content in the book is dated and far too prescriptive. And I guess um, they might be right, uh, but that does not mean it's worthless or you can modernize the principles in the book a little bit yourself. So there is some pushback against the contents in the book and I'll try to end this series with a podcast about possible alternatives to clean code um, since I don't want to claim that clean code is the best way to go. Uh, there are other things um, and you might notice that I don't fully agree with everything in the book either. So uh, once we touch on these topics, uh, I'll try to explain why. But let's start uh, diving into the book now. So... First of all, what the hell is clean code? And what would make code dirty or bad? Well, for the book, Uncle Bob asks some of his peers about what they thought clean code was. So he asked Bjorn Stutzrup, inventor of C++, Grady Butch, the author of some very good software design books, Dave Thomas, founder of OT, Michael Feathers and Ron Jeffries, also both authors, and Ward Cunningham, who is the inventor of wikis, FIT, co-inventor of extreme programming, and the force behind design patterns and small talk, and much more. And they all gave their opinion about what exactly clean code meant to them, 
And personally, I like the explanations given by Michael Feathers and Ward Cunningham the most. Like Michael Feathers says that um, clean code always looks like it was written by someone who cares. And Ward Cunningham says, you know, when you are working on clean code, when each routine you read turns out to be pretty much as you expected. Note that they are talking about how it looks and reads and not about how functionally awesome it is. So, for example, we probably all know someone who likes to write really clever algorithms that look cool on paper and make use of some cool compiler optimizations and stuff. But in the end, it is very unreadable. And you can probably find a couple of these uh, these code snippets on Stack Overflow right now. So that being said, clean code is mostly about uh, readability and maintainability. But of course, as with any code, it must be structurally correct and compiling. So what then uh, about dirty or bad code? Well, I think we all know what bad code looks like, right? Even without knowing what clean code ought to look like. And I bet we can all think of some part in the code um, you do not dare to change because if you do, you will probably break it. And the thing is, we are programmers, uh, we write code. So being afraid to edit some code uh, makes you unable to do your job. And well, uh, that's pretty unprofessionally. A stupid example uh, would be like uh, some car mechanic telling you he can't fix or upgrade your car because he's too afraid he is going to break something he did earlier. You're probably going to tell the guy that he's an idiot and go look for another mechanic who can do it. Well, I think the same goes for software. And there will always be codes, so we must take great care of it uh, and not let it rot because it will slow us down and hinder development and in the end uh, hinder the business or uh, like other stakeholders. And no, um, doing a redesign of the entire project at some later point in time in an effort to fix things is really unacceptable i think imagine telling the business after years of developing some software that the only solution to fix things uh, to fix all the bugs and the frequency uh, at which new features are released is to throw everything away and start over i think this is probably the worst news any manager or cio can get uh, well uh, maybe log 4j was bad uh, as well but we all know what i mean right and also, when you do a redesign of a system that is already in production, you need to maintain two projects. The old one, where you do the bug fixes and, of course, add new features because you're not uh, stopping development. And users want new features all the time. And you have to also build the new project, trying to keep up and anticipating the new features and try to fit them within the new design. And in the end, you will probably end up with the same mess. So we as developers must take responsibility to write good, clean code. Um, we must make sure we maintain the code and not just our own, but also that of our colleagues. That's important as well. Um, because why would we? Well, we as programmers spend more time reading code than writing it, I think. Um, and I think it's also been proven uh, many times over now. And thus, uh, code must be readable. And if it's not readable, you don't know what the hell it's doing. And thus, you cannot possibly make changes or uh, add new fixes or bugs. Or you just don't know what to do if you can't understand the code. 
So what do you do in this case? Well, of course, attach a debugger and run through it. Well, or worse, add many debug.log statements all over your code and try to figure out what to do. Well, I don't think you should do both of these things. And what you would do, of course, is run the tests for the piece of code. And if there are any tests, of course. And I don't know, it, it is very rare to find uh, Unity 3D projects that have proper unit tests and integration tests. And yes, if there aren't any tests, uh, maybe try and write some of your own uh, if the code is decoupled enough and to make it testable. Um, or maybe ask the developer who wrote it uh, to explain it to you if he or she is available, of course. And Uncle Bob has a, a rule or discipline that tries to mitigate the code worsening or rotting over time. He calls it the Boy Scout rule, which says that you must leave the campground cleaner than you found it. And what this essentially means is that you should always check the code in cleaner than you checked it out. Uh, in Git, for example. So even if you just have to add one line of code, uh, refactor some code around it uh, to make it cleaner, um, to fit the most recent design, for example, or coding standards or other kinds of policies or whatever. And if everyone would do this, the code would not worsen over time, as we sadly commonly still see, but it would get better over time, which would really be great, wouldn't it? So the importance of clean code is really relevant to every stakeholder in the project. Uh, may that be direct or indirect. And we as developers must take responsibility to make sure the code is as clean as it gets. Um, but how exactly do we do that? And how do we write clean code? And what practices and disciplines can we use to guarantee it? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. And we will explore this topic in grave detail. So what exactly does the book uh, address? Uh, well, let's look at the chapters. Um, so it starts off with meaningful names, like what do we call things? Um, next, uh, there's a chapter on functions, like how do you write a good function with the proper arguments and naming and everything? Then uh, we take a look at comments. Uh, why should we write them uh, or wouldn't we? And then code formatting and layout is uh, handled and objects and data structures. Uh, then error handling, uh, how do we properly handle fault situations? And this seventh chapter is about uh, boundaries. Like how do we deal with third party code? And the most funny thing about this is that there's actually a, a, a paragraph dedicated to learning log4j, <laughs> which is pretty funny uh, at this point in time. Next is uh, chapter eight, which is about unit tests and test-driven development. Uh, and I'm not quite sure if I'm going to cover all of this because uh, like TDD is a, <laughs> is a podcast topic of its own. Um, uh, chapter nine is, uh, is about classes and a proper encapsulation and uh, size. Chapter 10 is systems design and 11 is uh, emergent design on TDD. Um, and then there's a couple of other chapters, but I am not quite sure if those are uh, really uh, that important uh, in a Unity context uh, for this point in time. So as I said before, this first part of the Clean Code series uh, podcast will cover the first three chapters. Uh, and we just covered the first one, which was just some background information about yeah, what Clean Code is and why it's important to us. 
and the next two chapters, which are uh, meaningful names and uh, how to write good functions. So uh, let's get into the first chapter, shall we? So yeah, let's talk about meaningful names. We, as authors of code, must create many identifiers for pieces of code. Um, yeah, we name variables and functions and arguments to these functions, classes and folders or files, and projects or components, um, including many other Unity resources like prefabs or textures, scriptable objects, models, uh, you name it, uh, <laughs> no pun intended. But what exactly is important of a name in a software system? Well, I think an understandable and relatable name is very important. And also, you need the name to communicate the correct domain object and reach uh, some consensus about it within your team or company. Because, mm, let's say, for example, a class called player might mean different things. A player in a game might mean a user that is playing the game, or maybe a computer control player, or even some kind of media player for videos or audio or something. So there needs to be um, some consensus about what specific domain objects mean. So names need to be concise and fit properly within this domain. And for example, the guru uh, Uncle Bob listed a couple of guidelines about how to name things. And he started off by saying that names need to reveal the intention of the thing that it represents. So, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, the name needs to fit the correct domain. Um, so, for example, if you have a player class that exposes a function called damage, it does not really reveal what the damage function does. Does it calculate the damage or subtract it? Uh, does it apply the damage to something? Um, who knows? Um, so renaming the function to, let's say, take damage is far more descriptive. If the take damage function should be part of the player class, that's a totally different discussion, by the way. But you know what I mean. Uh, you should name functions uh, as the action that they undertake. And Another example would be one of these magic algorithms you might sometimes find on Stack Overflow that name everything by just a single character and smack everything down in one-liners. So you have a function with arguments called A, B and C, for example, but that does not communicate very well, unless it fits your domain. But I highly doubt that. And there's also some generally accepted conventions you should follow uh, and a very simple example is naming a boolean um, these are often prefixed by is or has to indicate that it represents a boolean so for example you should rename a flag called moving to is moving or weapon to has weapon or maybe is unarmed uh, although uh, naming things in a negated matter is bad practice too. But we will talk about this a bit later. Um, and some other prefixes you might see are get and set prefixes. Although uh, this relates more to, to Java than C Sharp. But always choose a name that reveals the intent of the thing you want to describe. So we don't want people to start guessing what it means and then coming up with a faulty conclusion and thus introduce bugs. And sometimes it might take a while until you come up with a fitting name. 
I know that me personally sometimes need a couple of iterations to come up with meaningful names. I mean, I might rename things multiple times before I check things into Git. And luckily we have very powerful refactoring tools in our modern IDEs, right? I mean, I hit shift F6, uh, which is rename and writer with IntelliJ shortcuts, by the way. Uh, I, I hit this shortcut very, very often. And the next piece of Uncle Bob's advice is to avoid names that spread disinformation. Uh, that's even worse, right? Uh, I mean, a bad name is one thing, but intentionally spreading disinformation is even worse. And I guess nowadays that disinformation, uh, uh, the word is pretty loaded, right? But nonetheless, um, disinformation sometimes accumulates in a project unknowingly by refactoring, for example. Think about the following example. You are writing a pooling system and you choose to represent the pool as an array. Uh, maybe uh, you added a fixed number of game objects as children of the pool uh, parent and thus simply get them in the awake or something by calling get components and children. Um, you call this pool pool array. Although pool would just have been fine and you would have avoided the problem I'm about to describe in the first place. But yeah, you call the thing pool array and it's all good until you get new requirements and you need to make the pool dynamic. So it needs to be able to grow and expand like a list object. So you simply change the type of the pool array variable to lists and add some logic to add and remove game objects from the pooling. Yet now you have a field called pool array that is actually a list. And this is what Uncle Bob means by disinformation. And we all probably have seen or know many things like this in our code base we are working in today. But the same goes for using generally accepted names that are proposed by design patterns, for example. But then making them mean something totally different. Like imagine that someone names a class game singleton, yet it does not implement the singleton pattern. That would be very, very confusing, right? And I'm not going into the problems of spreading singleton sprinkles all around your application just now, but just imagine this scenario. You would always make false assumptions of a class name like this. Then this information can also be created by introducing names that are just too long or too similar. So let's say we have an abstraction for persistence in our game and we implement both, uh, let's say, JSON and SQLite, for example. And we have two classes and they are called like my awesome persistence JSON singleton and my awesome persistence SQL singleton. And the chances someone is going to use the wrong class in this case can be pretty high since the names are this long and the difference between them is in the latter part of the name. Um, you could rename them to, let's say, JSON persistence or SQL persistence, respectively, for example. Now, the thing that sets them apart is in the first part of the name. Plus, the names are shorter and thus more readable. And this will probably avoid some bugs in your game. Then, another interesting point Uncle Bob makes, uh, which I have not really thought about much before is when you have you use variables called i and the integer 1 or a variable called o and the integer 0 in some algorithm 
that this will increase the processing cost on your brain uh, since it has to make the distinctions between I and 1 and O and 0. So I think um, in our modern IDEs, this is not much of a problem since variables and like constants or integers uh, are drawn in different colors nowadays. But I get if this was a problem in the early days. Um, and I think if you uh, edit the code in some random text editor without proper highlighting, let's say Notepad, but please don't do this, uh, get a proper IDE, you would definitely have issues uh, like finding the difference between I and 1, 0 and O and keeping them apart. But yeah, please just use an IDE and I think you can avoid this problem altogether. This is also a bit of a segue into the next thing Uncle Bob proposes and that is to make meaningful distinctions between names. And imagine you have some game where you can get the active player. So you have a function called getActivePlayer that returns a player object. But there's also like a function uh, called getActivePlayerInfo that also returns a player object. Now, what do we do in this case? I wouldn't know. Uh, maybe the function suffix with the info used uh, to return some scriptable object that defines some player stats like run speed and such. And in this case, the return value of the get active player info should be changed to the player info scriptable object. Or the function should simply be removed and all calls to the, to the function should be routed to the get active player since that is far more descriptive and it returns the same object. And there's also some other reasons why names can be distinct in some weird manners uh, by simply like typos and stuff. And we have all probably seen this before. And a very concrete example I remember is that we were like building a game which had an inventory uh, functionality built into it. And we wanted to uh, build the inventory ourselves uh, because of course we as game developers like building things like our own inventory systems i think every game dev has probably done this once or is currently planning to or doing it so we built the thing uh, but the old uh, inventory system we were replacing was not removed from the project and it was still used in some parts of the other game um, there was one flaw in our new inventory system class and that it was called, uh, well, spelled Invetnori instead of Inventory. And thus our IntelliSense would also always autocomplete to the old inventory system, which was really annoying. But luckily our IDEs caught this error instantly, but it was just really annoying to, to just get this typo out. But what if we didn't have IntelliSense? Would we have noticed? I think we would, because there were different functions and data available uh, in the new inventory system. But still, think about it. Fix typos as soon as you catch them. And then also, don't name things uh, duration int. Uh, just name it duration. I mean, would duration ever be a boolean or a string, for example? Uh, we can discuss whether duration might be an integer or a float, uh, but overall, we know something called duration is most likely a number. So these suffixes are just noise and should be removed. Like, how would you know the difference between a class called player or player object? 
I mean, if player in this case were some business entity decoupled from Unity, and player object would be the game object that is shown in the scene, uh, well, just please remove the object suffix and namespace them properly um, so you can make your code more understandable. Um, I'm not quite sure if you agree with this. Uh, uh, maybe uh, you would like to let me know if you would separate uh, these suffixes from, from objects. Um, but I do it this way and I just namespace things properly. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about uh, what you think. And another attribute of a good name is that it's readable. And we probably all know some class or function that uses weird acronyms all over the place. I mean, a class called Player Button Manager, which stands for Player Button Manager. How would you communicate it with other developers on the team? Would you pronounce the full name or would you yell this succession of weird acronyms to the office? Maybe they'll even feel offended. Like, hey Dave, go player button manager yourself. So try to avoid acronyms in names and just write things out. Um, this will lead to a name being a bit longer sometimes, but it makes the name uh, more pronounceable, which will improve communication among teams. And also, if you find that you uh, write the full names instead of the acronyms and the names become far too long, well, maybe then it's time to think of a different name altogether. Because if names are not well written and understood, then searching for them or the understanding of the code is difficult. And this is notoriously with singer letter names. Uh, imagine that you have member variables called I in a large class. This is horrible to read or find. Uh, and there are exceptions to this rule, of course like the vector classes in Unity 3D, uh, they have variables called X, Y, and Z because that's part of the domain. So it's pretty clear what they mean. But if you have uh, a player class with a variable called P for position, then things start to become vague. And Uncle Bob has some great advice concerning one-letter variables or fields. And he says that, uh, and I quote, the length of a name should be correspondent to the size of its scope. So a short name is acceptable if the scope is small and we require longer, more descriptive names if the scope is large. And you should also make sure to refactor out constant numbers or strings in algorithms or well, in your code in general. Uh, I mean, uh, if you are, for example, rotating some object in the scene and you have something like transform.rotate with the vector tree up times five times uh, time dot delta time, for example, rename the constant five to something like speed or speed modifier. And another simple example is when you're doing things like localization, uh, you know, uh, translating text to the correct languages. You sometimes have specific pre uh, or suffixes in localization keys. I think this is a common design thing, but these constants should be named uh, co as constants variables in your class somewhere. Because first of all, you then you don't up end up repeating them all over the place and using um, a variable will be more readable since you can add a small abstraction that way. 
And the same goes for URLs or accessing the, the file system, for example. And a perfect example of this would be like the application.persistentdatapath. Imagine if you would need to uh, like repeat the, the specific path all over the place. I think Unity made a very good choice here. And they did it as well with some other parts like uh, just the application.datapath and accessing the streaming assets uh, folder. There are constant variables for this um, and you should take the same design choice for this. So there are parts of these uh, like URIs that are um, like static uh, and you can put them in, uh, in nice variables. And Uncle Bob then also touches on a topic that I personally really get annoyed by sometimes. And that is by having these meaningless member prefixes like M underscore, for example. That's one we see in Unity very often. We all have seen this in code where something like a variable called name would be called M underscore name. This is just totally unnecessary with our modern IDEs. I mean, just follow the C-sharp coding standards and call it underscore name and yes the underscore uh, prefix is pretty useful since arguments and functions are all lowercase as well so if you have a function called set name with a string name in there as an argument um, then if you prefix uh, some member variable with an underscore you don't have to use the this keyword in the function body but yeah, you still don't really need the underscore since you can use this dot name. But I think generally uh, the C sharp coding uh, like standards and conventions uh, say to use the underscore, but M underscore is uh, totally unnecessary, uh, I think. And then another example of a generally uh, accepted prefix is the i for interface and uncle bob says that you can remove the i from the interface definition so for example i player would just become player and why well because you as a user of the interface should not know or care about if you are working with a concrete class or an abstraction and in this case I disagree with the guru, and I'll tell you why. Well, the prefixed I for interface has been there for a very, very long time. Changing this will just increase confusion in most situations. And I remember discussing this with colleagues, and they all wanted the I prefix for interfaces, because that's historically how it's done. And it's still good to question these things, because we have always done it this way is one of the worst answers you can get. Um, but we decided not to take this advice from Uncle Bob uh, because we wanted to fit the industry uh, standard. Um, maybe if the de facto standard changes, we would remove the I prefix as well. But as for now, um, we keep on naming our uh, interfaces with an I uh, prefixed. And then he talks about uh, some generally uh, accepted things like classes should always be nouns like player or user or enemy weapon and chest for example they should not be verbs and also a class is always singular so don't call your class enemies or 
bullets. Uh, in this case, you should maybe use like enemy pool or button pool, for example. Uh, if you need to express something that is a plural, try to boil it down in some single entity. And this can sometimes be difficult, but yeah, the act of renaming things takes no effort in our modern IDEs. So try to uh, uh, use a couple of nouns and see what fits best. Method names, on the other hand, should always be verbs like apply damage or move. And I know move can be both a noun and a verb, but the context is probably known. And then again, try to make the verb fitting for the action that is going to be undertaken. And also consider side effects made by the function if there are any. So for example, if you have a function that updates a username, but it also writes it to a database or backend, add that in the function name. And it would still be better to separate these calls, but still rename a function of this sort from update name to let's say update name and save, for example. I know this is very ugly, but the it communicates the intent very well. And this will probably motivate you to separate the name update and the persistence logic. But we'll talk about more uh, about functions uh, and side effects uh, in a later chapter. Then something else I also sometimes see in code is uh, people trying to come up with funny names. And yes, I have done this myself with a class and we were making like a VR game and we had these async uh, commands called jobs. And while in VR, you have the concept of hands. So yeah, fill in the blanks there. <laughs> and yeah, we had a good laugh about it, but we probably did not communicate the intent of the job very well. And the fact I cannot remember exactly what the job did proves as much, I think. So you probably know variables or functions or classes with funny names like wrapping destroy calls for game objects and functions like go hang myself or something. Just don't do it. And then next, Uncle Bob tells us to stick with one word per concept. So don't use names like manager or controller to mean the exact same domain object. This will confuse people. I mean, what is the difference between managers and controllers anyway? And uh, like according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, a controller is something that has authority to control and a manager is something who directs a team. So there's a distinct difference between a controller and a manager. And I mean, the controller has authority to force things, but the manager just facilitates or something. So we are actually, are we actually this precise when it comes to naming things in code? I hope so, but well, I wouldn't go this way since it will probably confuse people. Yet if uh, the controller and managers are distinct concepts in your domain model, you can use them. Um, but yeah, just make sure you have communicated that properly. And next, uh, although I think we touched upon this topic already, is the to use yes solution domain names. Like if you have a class that represents a queue, call it that way. For example, in a multiplayer uh, like FPS game, if you have some kind of queue for respawning uh, after you got fried, call the class respawn queue to indicate that 
it is an actual Q object. That's a generally uh, like accepted convention. This will increase the understandability of the code. And the same goes for other kinds of uh, domain objects like stacks and visitors and even design patterns like abstract factory, for example. And lastly, please avoid meaningless prefixes to indicate things belonging to some project. And the obvious example that comes to mind here is like the Text Mesh Pro implementation in Unity. Um, it is a very cool piece of software, but yeah, the annoying TMP underscore prefix is totally unnecessary. And I can't really remember if this if they had this prefix before they got acquired by Unity. Uh, so they may have done this for like backwards compatibility reasons or something to avoid conflicts. But yeah, they can remove it in some later version if it were up to me. Just in the next major release, uh, where breaking changes are generally accepted, just remove the darn TMP underscore prefix and be done with it. But yeah, so this was the second chapter of the book, Meaningful Names. And the next chapter dives deep into functions and Functions are a really important concept in programming since they will offer you the actions to get things done and they are one of the main concepts you can organize things with. So with just data, you can do much, but you need functions to operate on that data and make something useful out of it. And in this chapter, we are going to explore all the advice Uncle Bob gives uh, to write proper clean functions. Well, first of all, functions should be small. And even when you already think they are small, they should be even smaller. And Uncle Bob proposes that they should be like two to four lines long. And you might think this is impossible, but he means there should only be as much of four executable lines of code in a function. So yeah, braces and parentheses don't count. And because... If they would, um, a simple guarding if statement at the top of your function would count as three lines, right? But there's only one line that actually does something. This is also the reason that I personally adopted a C-sharp style that uses as less braces as possible. And in, in my opinion, it makes the code far cleaner because if you do not have uh, braces for if statements or loops, the body in the loop can only ever be one line um, that contains, well, you guessed it, another function. And I do admit that, well, sometimes I write longer functions than four lines, but this is because it feels meaningless to extract more than I already did. So sometimes I have already extracted all the logic that is on another level of abstraction. Thus, I cannot meaningfully extract anymore. So see this advice as a guideline and not as uh, a rule set in stone. So I think we found another example of advice that feels a bit dated, I guess. Just remind yourself to keep functions as small as you can meaningfully get them. Now let's talk a bit how you can get them as small as it takes. So first of all, try to keep the level of indenting to one. And this might sound silly or something, but if you keep the level of indenting to one, then it's pretty easy to keep the function short since you will need to call other functions in the function body uh, of the existing one. This is also a very nice piece of advice I use as much as I can. Uh, 
unless, again, it feels meaningless to extract uh, functionality into another function. A simple example is when you have like a try-catch block and within it you have some if statement or loop. This gets you to level of indenting, right? And Uncle Bob says that you should always extract the code within a try-catch block into its own function, but that will sometimes feel meaningless and it might even be dangerous since if you extract the function to some private function in your class, someone else can call that function now, but it is no longer protected by the try-catch block. So I still think the body inside the try-catch block should be as small as possible, but just extracting the method body into its own function merely to conform to this rule is a bit too much sometimes. And next, functions should only do one thing. Um, so by doing only one thing, you can keep the function small, right? And this piece of advice I highly recommend to follow and also agree with heavily. Functions must only do one thing and this will keep your function short and also will reduce the level of indenting. You probably know about some 100 line update functions in your code base somewhere. And I bet that the update function is doing more than one thing. It might track input, timing logic, movement uh, in one massive update function. So extract these things out to their respective functions and reduce the body of the update function down to only these three things in this case. And in, in some functions, you might be able to identify that it is divided into multiple stages like declarations, initializations, operations, and cleanup. This might be a sign that your function does more than one thing because it actually does three things. Trying to keep your functions limited to do one thing can be really difficult, but once you get used to it, it will make your code look far cleaner and better to read. And trust me, I've noticed the difference over the years. And I glanced about this topic uh, just a second ago that uh, functions should only have one level of, of extraction. So when you have a function that deals with high level concepts like player, an enemy or weapon, don't start throwing around string buffers or HTTP requests in the same functions because these are low level concepts extract those out into one of the classes the functionality belongs to and just call that function. And the same goes for having all kinds of debug.log statements that break the level of abstraction by logging weird data. Extract them out and keep your functions clean and make sure the level of abstractions is on the same level. So if there are two levels of abstraction in your function, extract the second level out into something new and call that function. I really can't keep up with the amount of times that I smacked that control alt l button in Rider uh, to extract the function. And another aspect of using only small functions everywhere is that you can easily reuse that functionality. And you have probably committed the crime of copy and pasting the same logic around in the same class or maybe even multiple classes. And I know for sure that I have done this before. And if you use this approach of using only one level of abstraction in a function and abstracting it, you don't need to copy and paste logic around anymore. You can simply call that function. So this will also keep your code dry, so don't repeat yourself. And 
Uncle Bob also says you should organize the body of a function in a top-down manner. And what he means here is that a function must start at its highest level of abstraction. And as the function progresses, it should call lower levels of abstraction. He compares this in one of his talk with the way news articles are structured. They start with the header and then some introduction that generally uh, explain things. And then the further you go into the article, the details increase and thus the level of detail goes lower. I'll try to hunt down the talk, but I think it's a very old talk from like the NDC conferences in Oslo in like 2009 or 11 or something. And it's about this chapter of the book. Although I'm not quite sure if the, the book Clean Code was written back then already. Then next he talks about switch statements. Yeah, how would you keep switch statements with more than four cases less than four lines? I mean, switch cases always do n number of things, not one. And well, a simple answer uh, to solve this is, well, you can't. But what you can do is use that switch statement as less as you can. So don't go copying that statement all over the code. Keep it isolated in some class and use that class because a switch statement can be a really big issue that introduces bugs into a system because like some developer might use all switch statements uh, individually and yet another developer um, might use if else statements or simply only a single if statement uh, for a single case. So if there are bugs in the system, you must track down and catch every clever usage of that switch statement. And trust me, this can become a real nightmare. So the thing I sometimes do is extract the switch statement logic into its own class and just make it follow a simple command pattern. That you simply pass in the object that has uh, some kind of enum value or something to check the switch statement and add some kind of callback or uh, action that should be executed. This way you still have a multi-line switch statement somewhere, but it is isolated into its own class. It's just a necessary evil you sometimes cannot deal with another way. And some of you might disagree with this, but yeah, let me know uh, what you think about switch statements. And how would you solve this particular issue? Um, and the next topic, uh, Uncle Bob... Uh, wants to discuss um, our function arguments. And this is a fairly controversial topic, I think. And Uncle Bob has some very prescriptive advice here, and I'll try to uh, give you my most honest opinion, because some of these I simply do not agree with. And let me explain it. So he starts off by saying that the function you can best understand is a function without arguments. And I think we can all agree with this one. I mean, if you do not have to think about uh, passing arguments into the function, you just call it and be done with it, right? And next he talks about functions with only one argument. Um, these are very common and there are two reasons to inject an argument into a function. You're either going to ask a question about the argument or you might do an operation on that argument to like transform it. And he also says uh, to avoid single argument functions that return a void, but use a return value as an output argument. I mean, why would you ever do this, right? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. 
like a method returning void but has an out argument? Like what the heck? I'm not even sure that I have ever seen this in C Sharp. And he also says you should avoid flag or boolean arguments as much as you can, because if you pass a boolean into a function, it probably does more than one thing, right? I mean, it does something in the true case and something else in the false case. It's kind of obvious, right? But I do disagree with him on this issue. And I use flag arguments for functions like set active something or toggle something or enable something. Separating these out is just too much and it will increase the indentation and number of lines in the calling function, right? So if you have a function enable and a function disable, there needs to be an if statement somewhere else that makes the decision to call the right function. So sometimes just keep that boolean argument. Just make sure to remove it in functions it does not belong to. Like if you have a save functions with, uh, with two arguments where the first is the state of the game and the second is a boolean that indicates if the state is also supposed to be sent to like a backend or maybe some, uh, some file uh, system for example. So setting it to false will save the game on the local machine and setting it to true will save it on the cloud. Just separate these functions out to like save local and save on cloud or something. This will clarify the intent of the function far better than some random boolean argument, right? And I can also remember a talk he did on clean code and the function chapters uh, specifically where he talks about uh, this and the boolean argument being tangled on. This is a talk from quite a long time ago and him being a Java programmer and me being pretty sure that Java at that time did not support default function parameters uh, and last I checked, it still doesn't. It's weird, right? So when you have support for default function parameters, you can simply make one function call that has all the defaults in there and call it uh, with whatever data you need to customize. But just to remind you that um, default function parameters are no excuse for like putting random kinds of uh, arguments to a function. If these are not really related uh, to the function, just extract them out in separate functions. And if the concept of default function arguments is new to you, you should definitely check it out since it will remove many unnecessary function overloads you probably don't need. And I use them here and there, and in some cases. And I can't really quickly think of a nice example, uh, but you will probably know of some nice places you can add them if you know uh, what this language feature brings to you. Let me know if you have a nice pattern or usage for this. And next, Uncle Bob talks about how to properly name a function. And I, I think we glanced at this topic earlier in the previous uh, chapter, right? But here he specifically states that functions should contain verbs. And if needed, it can be the combination of a verb and like a keyword, like write field with an argument like name or something. Now that we have gotten a bit further into the chapter of functions, it starts to touch on some more important topics. I mean, nice names and arguments are one thing, but there are some more uh, important operational things we need to make sure we comply to in order to write proper clean functions. And that is, we cannot have side effects in functions unless it is absolutely clear that there are side effects. But what are side effects, you might be thinking? 
Well, the perfect example here is open and close function on a file or a stream. If you call open twice without closing it between the calls, it will throw an exception. And God forbid you forget to close the stream or file once you are done with it, because then you'll have like a memory leak. And yeah, these functions do, in my opinion, not communicate very well that there are side effects, but it is more an historical pattern, right? So if some terminology fits your domain model, you can get away with short names like this. And luckily in C-sharp, we have the using statement that takes care of opening and closing streams or files or other kinds of classes that implement the iDisposable interface. But what using does is it tries to allocate the resources to open a stream or file. Then you execute your logic and do your magic. And once your code block is done, it will close the stream or file automatically. And personally, I find the using statement and syntax very nice and I use it wherever it makes sense, like an HTTP request or accessing the file system. Um, well, I went off on a little tangent here a bit, but yeah, uh, let's try uh, to keep as less functions with uh, side effects in your code base as possible. And I'm trying to come up with a nice example in uh, Unity context, but... Um, well, maybe this. Um, imagine you are implementing some kind of merchant system in your game. And once you buy something from the store, the amount must be subtracted from your game currency. Um, the buying from the store and subtracting the correct amount from currency from the wallet should be separate functions, I think. And of course, these functions are highly related, but the functionalities should not be coupled to one another because it will confuse people. And another interesting and really important topic is uh, output arguments to functions and we have already talked about this a bit earlier but uncle bob says that you should avoid uh, output arguments as much as you can and if you must change some state then you should create two functions and i simply disagree with this since i use functions with output arguments all the time and the perfect example is that try get value on like a dictionary if you're implementing this kind of behavior, you just return a Boolean argument as the function output itself and then return the reference of the thing you want to get as an output argument. This results in a very nice workflow in my opinion. And I do agree with Uncle Bob when you have uh, output arguments on the functions that return a void because that's just, that's just useless. I mean, these should definitely be avoided. But generally, I use arguments in like a try get something context. Um, and then um, he touches on the subject of command query separation. And let's first of all quickly explain exactly what command query separation is. And Uncle Bob describes it as a function should either do something or ask something, and not both. So what he means is that a function executes some kind of action or it should do a check for something, like some assertion or some query. Um, your function should not do both. And I think a really nice example is those one-liners you sometimes see in uh, conditions of if statements. And the textbook example that I fondly remember is reading lines from a stream reader, where you check if the line is null and assign it to a local variable. You can simply do this by adding some additional parentheses in the if statement. This is both a query, checking if the line is empty, 
and assigning the line to a local variable, the action. And I bet if you have followed some book about C-sharp programming, you have encountered this specific pattern. And I have to admit that I sometimes use this pattern because it's just so common and concise. So although it's not a proper command query separation, it's still I still use it inside functions. But if we take it to a greater scope, you should definitely try to avoid combining queries and commands. So on a function level, separate out commands from queries or actions from, from questions. And a simple example that I can give you from the top of my mind is the following. Imagine you build some kind of pooling system and you have a method, something like called get by some predicates function. Now, what the function does is the, to query objects in the pool that match the predicate you have given. And imagine that if the object is not found, a new object is taken from the pool and flagged active. Plus, it gives it those properties you specified in the predicate. So, we have two problems here. First of all, we have a function with a side effect. And second, we run a query searching for the object and an action that instantiating the object with the properties from the predicate. And this is very confusing, and trust me, I have seen solutions like this because it is convenient, quote-unquote. And what do you think about command query separation? Do you have some nice examples? Uh, please let me know. And next up is preferring exceptions over error codes. And although catching exceptions is easier, I disagree with Uncle Bob on this one as well. And as we all know that exceptions create a lot of overhead, generating text uh, traces, etc. It is very slow and in real-time systems like games, we often cannot accept these exceptions being thrown because of it. Uh, that being said, you really need to build in a lot of sanity checks, preferable at the edges of your bounded context. And yeah, uh, a bounded context is a term from domain-driven development by um, uh, Eric Evans, um, which means that responsibilities are encapsulated inside the bounded context, and terminology within the context has a specific meaning, which is well understood. And also, all data traversing through the bounded context is deemed trusted. So it's... Uh, checked for null references and other kinds of corrupted data or values. So in a Unity context, we try to avoid throwing exceptions in part of the code that are heavily frame dependent. So don't throw exceptions inside an update loop, for example. This also means that you should not throw exceptions somewhere far up the stack. And generally, do sanity checks and use exceptions only in code that does not impact the real-time system. And another piece of advice I would like to give is to try avoid using debug.log errors, since if you use it, you need to jump through some loops with unit testing. And I know this might sound as bad advice, because most log error statements you see in Unity projects are often recoverable, meaning you log some error, but it's not critical, and thus the execution of the code can continue. If you do use log errors, then your unit tests will start failing on these logs. And try and come up with some proper nil or default values for functions like empty strings or lists or arrays or just simply nil. 
And you can also make nullable types by adding like a question mark to the type of the variable or field. So you can make an int or a boolean nullable and operate on them properly uh, if that's needed. And then Uncle Bob ends this chapter with some comments about try-catch statements. But we have already talked about this earlier a little bit. And his advice is to always extract the tie-catch block into their own function, since it will reduce the indentation and to clarify something potentially dangerous is going to happen. And again, my advice for this is to carefully consider this, because when you extract the function out of the try-catch block, you introduce the option to call the function without the try-catch block and thus introduce bugs into the system. So I guess I've been rambling long enough now and these are the first three chapters of the clean code book. Well, I gave it my own spin, right? Um, and next time we will look at the next two or three chapters about comments, formatting, ob formatting and objects and data structures. And I hope you enjoyed this information and learned something. And if subjects are still kind of vague, you can always ask me a question. Or even better, uh, get the book and read it for yourself, since I think that's the best way to get the information, right? Straight from the source. And the book is written in a very friendly manner and it's really easy to read. So I hope you join me on the next podcast and please remember to rate this podcast on your favorite platform and leave me some feedback if you like. And oh, if you want to um, support the podcast, please consider using the affiliate link uh, provided in the show notes. So see you next time. And as always, remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over.